I'm Shelley Palmer. I'm Ross Martin. And you're listening to Think About This. I'm Ross Martin. Right, you are Ross Martin, but we're listening to Think About This. And I'm Ross Martin. Okay, Ross, how did you become Ross Martin? Well, today I'm going to introduce you to my mentor, Harry Oppenheimer. He's totally awesome. So you're going to introduce us to your mentor. We're going to find out how the man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> Ross Martin, became Ross Martin. So welcome to Think About This. The more you listen, the less you know. It's feeling like the end of days. And so, you know, Shelly and I felt like we needed to reach out to our mentors and, I don't know, find some solace or inspiration. And you, for me, Harry Oppenheimer, have always been the one I go to to remind me of how wonderfully joyous life can be. No matter how much shit is going on, you're the one that reminds me to still laugh and smile and try to make other people laugh. So I figured this is probably a good time for us to talk on the podcast. What do you think? I think it's a great idea. And you're one of the very lucky few that doesn't have to deal with Shelly during the interview. It's just me. That, that's true. I've listened enough to know that. I think we have to first, before we start to go into the stories that I really want people to hear, the things about you that just inspire the heck out of me. Can you just describe how we know each other? Because <laughs> I feel like I've grown up with you, but our relationship is we're family, technically. We're family and uh, tighter than ever, I think. Uh, over the years, you and I have uh, done a lot of funny things together and uh, get a kick out of each other. And who can uh, come up with the most creative whatever is going on? By the way, who has the cattleman's plate? Remember, you and I went, you and I went to a restaurant in California because we were, our families were starving. Oh, my, yes. Forgot about that. And everyone was pissed off, and they were all hangry. And we decided to stop at the side of a road at a steakhouse in the middle of nowhere, California. And it was a steakhouse called Cattleman's. And we were talking about how they had their own dishware which was labeled, like had their own designs on it and everything. And the next thing I know, I get back into my car on my way home and one of the plates was in my car because you stole it and put it in my car. I'm sure I paid for it, please. Yeah, bullshit. And then every year we've been sending it back and forth to each other or hiding it in each other's house. That is correct. And I don't really remember who had, do I have it now? I don't know where it is at the moment. But I think I might have it. I think if either of us look through our closets, through our wife's underwear drawer, whatever it is, we're going to find it. Okay. Okay. That's probably true. And then I remember the first time I visited you on your ranch, which was a, it was a farm in the middle of Chicago. Like nobody has a farm in Chicago in like basically right outside of the city, but you did. And I'll never forget walking on that farm for the first time. And I saw animals I had never seen before. What kind of animals did you have? Like two-headed animals and things like that, right? <laughs> yeah, that you engineered biologically somehow. Right. And you had um, like a mini horse. Right, who would come in the house for parties, walk around. Yes. And then you had two ducks in the back. One was named Hank. Oh, very good. Wow. And the other was named Honk. What did you do when you got up in the morning and you would walk out there and what did you say to them? Then they'd come over. Yeah, but you would yell, Hank, honk, right, right. Hank, honk, and then they would just come over. That's correct. Then you took me on a tour in the back to your, to your grove, and you had trees 
but all your trees had weird shit growing on them. Like what was on those trees? What were you growing in your backyard? We had peaches, bananas. You had banana trees. Uh, you name it, all kinds of fruit, uh-huh. including a, a large peach of, of French bread. Yeah, you had a bread tree. It was growing bread. Right, it's because everybody, you know, they know that the food ends up in their grocery store, and that's where they get it, and I wanted them to realize where all this stuff grows. And then you also had money trees. You literally had cash growing on trees. A little, Yeah, a little cash. That... I always told the kids back, yeah, go back to the money tree and get the, you know. So then as our relationship grew, you tried to help me get my poems published in magazines because you would call ex-girlfriends of yours who, who were running literary journals, and you would try to convince them to publish my poems, which was very nice of you. Thank you. But then when I got into film and television, I used to bring you to pitches. And people would be like, who's this guy? And I would be like, oh, that's my guy. And people would be like, what? Because you were very serious looking. You would wear your red socks. You would wear like, you would look dressed very conservatively. Thank you. And you didn't look like a Hollywood guy. You just looked like an older gentleman who was, you know, distinguished. And you wouldn't say anything. No, I very quiet. You would stand there like my bodyguard, but you don't look like a bodyguard. And people would be like, who is this man in the pit that's standing next to you? And I say, oh, that's Harry Oppenheimer. And they would go, oh, because mm-hmm. you have that name that makes people think you're like a Rockefeller. And then they would say, well, who is he? And I'd say, that's just my guy. And that was the birth of our real friendship. That's probably true. When we started to actually go out together and fuck with people. Right. So, Harry, one thing that you have taught me is the, the joy of pranking other people, like sort of finding ways to disrupt their everyday reality or banality. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the pranks that you've pulled on other people, which many of which I've actually seen, a lot of which I've heard about. But, you know, what's like, what are your favorite pranks? Well, first of all, I do like injecting unexpected things into conversations, etc. And uh, I get my kicks of making other people feel good. Uh, I like to bring some laughter into other people's, even strangers' lives uh, every day. So it's fun. But some of the things that I've pulled off over the years is uh, going to a movie theater and in the hallway out as you're walking in the theater, often there are these large garbage cans that they use to clean up the theater after the show. Yes. I love walking down the aisle and yelling to my wife, honey, I bought the large bucket of popcorn just to see what the reaction of the audience is. And it is. They're shaking their head normally. One of my favorite stories. So I, I like, I guess because of my job, I get to eat in a lot of fancy restaurants and I never feel like I belong in them. I'm usually not dressed appropriately and I don't understand some of the words on the menu. Really? <laughs> my producers are laughing at me right now. But here's the thing. You, when you go to a fancy restaurant, I know you like to mess with people because everyone's taking it so seriously. And I remember a story you told me about one of the nicest restaurants in, in town. And you suddenly, out of nowhere, there was a cricket. And, and it's like a cricket making a cricket noise in a fancy restaurant where there's not supposed to be any bugs at all. 
but it was a, a loud cricket. Am I right? That is correct. And, and what did you do? Well, what happened? I kept making the cricket sound occasionally. Can as, you make it for us now? What does it I'll sound like? Try to do that. I don't know if you can. That's amazing. You guys love that, right? It's right. great. So uh, I was doing that. And now there were only about three tables left in the restaurant as we, uh, and uh, as the evening went on. And then I, as I was doing the cricket, and people were kind of looking around, I got up and I, you know, slammed my foot down. And a lady at the table nearby screamed because I had killed this cricket. So I pretended to pick it up and put it in my hand and slowly, slowly brought it back to life. <laughs> and finally was back to, oh, and she was so relieved. With that, uh, we, pay, we became friends. There were four of us and two ladies, attractive ladies at the next table. And when it came around to paying for dinner, uh, the waitress came over and uh, off we offered our credit card. And she said, no, 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 it's been taken care of. We said, taken care of? What do you mean? Well, the ladies at the next table took care of it. And we turned around. Did you, you know, after not believing it, I thought my friend did it. He thought I did it. It turned out that she did take care of our dinner. And it was, she said it wasn't a real big bill. It was, it was $350. And so we said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then we tried to figure out how we could do something. Well, she said, you know, somebody passed on a meal to me once. So I thought I would pass this on to you. And why don't you do the same thing for somebody else? You also made a very special appearance at my 40th birthday party. Yes. Well, first, first, a limousine picked me up in my outside, and and it was a very big limousine, and that doesn't really happen on my block in Brooklyn. And the guard window came down, and all I heard was some the driver turned to me, and I couldn't see him, and he said, "Do you like to party?" And I'm like, "What the hell with this guy?" It was like eleven in the morning, and then I said, "I guess," and then. The driver said, do you like girls or do you like boys? And I was like, well, it's a little, who is this driver? Then the window goes back up. I can't see the driver anymore. The driver gets out of the car, comes around to the passenger side in the back, opens the door, and it's you. And you were the driver. That's true. I had, I had to convince the real driver to let me drive the car up to your house. Yes. Uh, and I and that took some. And he was like hiding in the bushes somewhere. That's right. He and was then, the block behind. So then you got in the car with me later that evening. My wife threw a dinner for me at Peter Luger's Steakhouse, and I'll never forget. We walked in there, and everybody was um, upset because there was a note on everybody's plate, right? Yes. And what did that note say, Harry? Well, that was. Basically, everybody come in to have a great steak dinner. They were all looking forward to this great dinner. And so everybody was uh, seated there, and they opened up their menus, including my wife. And it said, uh, a little yellow piece of paper said, due to the latest New York City health uh, 
department's restrictions, <laughs> we can no longer serve rare or medium rare steaks. Well, everybody in your group went crazy. Yeah, because that's what you go there for is medium right. rare. You know, you don't. Right. Yeah. So that was fun. And it took a while for them to figure out who was put up, who put this up. Yeah, and I don't think the wait staff was was very yes. happy. You have a thing with restaurants. Like, right. You typically just, because they take themselves so seriously and you can't deal with that. Like, you just have to undermine it. Right. And so you've done a few things in restaurants and in, when serving dinner in your own home. I, can you talk about um, the time where you and your wife were at an industry dinner and there were 12 couples there? Right. And you went to a fancy restaurant. And what did you do there? Well, uh, they didn't all know each other, which was, you know, so I'm trying to break the ice a little bit for them. So I went to the restaurant ahead of time and took a copy of their menu, used the same type style, and changed the items so that it included things like chickpeas in clam sauce with orange fritters or mackerel stuffed with coffee grounds. <laughs> the best one was loin of kangaroo with winter greens and summer vegetables. Well, that's the kind of thing that was on there. There was nothing that anybody could really eat. So now they're leaning over to their husband or wife and saying, you know, here, it's a fancy place. What are we supposed to do? How do we handle this? One couple uh, went to, one man actually, went to a telephone. He was called away. And um, the rest of us finally, they figured it out. And, and they started saying, Harry, Harry. And they got the, <laughs> the fun out of it and laughing. And now the friend moves, returns to our table. And everybody says, uh, hurry up, Bob. You know, everybody else is ordered. So now he's under a lot of pressure trying to figure out what is possible to eat on this menu. Yeah. So everybody else got a good laugh again at Bob. So that was fun. It was a great way to get rid of the tension that might have uh, continued, but it, it broke the evening up. You also have a very funny way of paying for a meal. Now, I've been with you when you pay for a meal, and you give them like a blank credit card. It's not like a real credit card. It's just a blank credit card, right? So they, right. I've seen you do it. You put it in there, and they don't look. Like the waiter doesn't look. They just take the thing away. And then they come back to you a few minutes later because they're they're sort of confused because it's not a real credit card, right? So what do they say? Right. Well, they come, they, hey, this isn't a credit. I said, I gave you a credit card. What did you do to it? <laughs> you know, I let them, and they're shaking their head and they're trying to figure out. They're looking under the table. They go back to their station to see if they dropped it along the way. That's just fun to do. See how you, they handle it. You also love being the waiter yourself. I've been in many situations for you where it's either at a restaurant or at your home or someone else's home and you decide I'm going to be the waitstaff. But you always mess it up, like intentionally, and you create these situations where nobody knows what to do. Like, for example, when you were at my mother and father-in-law's house and my mother-in-law had passed away, Diana, and we were using her bowls for, I think it was, Thanksgiving dinner. And my father-in-law asked you to take the bowls that Diana had made by hand out of the top uh, shelf and bring them over to the table and set the table. And you said, sure. And you proceeded to, about two minutes later, reach up with one hand, 
while you use the other hand to knock down a bunch of silverware onto the ground to make it sound like you had just destroyed all of my mother-in-law's ceramics. And he turned around apoplectic. Like he actually had his fist in the air ready to strike you. And I'm like, don't hit him. He was just kidding. Like the, the bowls are fine. He was just fucking with you. Why do you do that stuff? I don't know. Again, <laughs> I hope that that would, uh, you know, not be as tragic as it appeared. But well, it was I, fun. It was Actually, fun. After, after I think my mother-in-law was... would have laughed her ass off if she right, had seen right. it. She probably was laughing up in heaven. You, But you do this all the time. Like, can you talk about some of the examples of when well, you're, what you're the waiter? When, when we're at, ho at home, for example, yeah. I will clear the plates. It's a nice gentleman. Take them into the kitchen, but I've already lined up the pots and pans in the kitchen so that I can drop those items to make it sound like I've dropped all the dishes. And then I kind of appear at the door of the dining room and say, it'll be just a minute for dessert. And I go back in. You also have a, you've, you've inspired my gift giving. Like my, the way I give gifts is now different than before, mostly because of you. You, can you tell everyone what kind of gifts you give? I know that one of them was a plant. Yes. Well, I enjoy doing uh, – it's hard to do this one because you have to convince a florist to deliver a dead plant to someone. You know, they, <laughs> their name's on it. But I have them uh, deliver a dead plant with, to a friend with a normal you know, note saying happy birthday or whatever happens to be the occasion. And it's fun – to see what really happens after that uh -huh. because obviously they call the uh, florist to see you know that this is dead it came here and on and on and on so it's fun what does your wife Anne think of all this because she's not just the straight man like a lot of times you don't tell her what you're about to do so she's kind of not in on it she is not in on it is correct because if she was in on it, she'd say, Harry, you can't do that. <laughs> Whether it's tripping on the street or uh, when I go by a, um, a sign that's too low, I'll smash it with my hand and make it appear like I've hit my head as I'm walking <laughs> down the street and everybody's turning around. I now do that, by the way. Oh, you do? I'm glad that I've talked. Pretty much every day. And my kids do that because of you. Yeah. I also I do a pretty good theatrical trip. So when I'm walking into uh, or across a room or something, I'll do the trip and then I'll turn around and pick up a piece of lint that I might have tripped on and put that in my pocket and just keep walking to see what the reaction's pretty good. How did you meet your wife, Anne? Uh, I met her. We both were uh, actually in Cirque du Soleil <laughs> at one point, and uh, we were trapeze artists. And one time when I caught her high above the center ring, yeah. I licked into her eyes and I knew that she was the girl that I would marry. And that's how it happened. And everybody from the circus came to the wedding. It was, it was great. <laughs> when people ask you what you actually do for a living, now you're retired, although you're now a full-time joker. And <laughs> when people ask you what you did for a living, you generally well. Normally, I'll say that I was a, going to be a brain surgeon, mm -hmm. but it took a an extra year of grade school. <laughs> so 
it didn't work out for me. No, you always say, I've heard you do this. You go, well, I was intense. And then people look at you like, what? And then you go, no, I was like literally intense. And yeah, so I was what, intense. You're what right. was the business that you ran before? That was just 60 years ago. Um, no, it wasn't. I was doing it. Yes, it was. I guess it was when it started. I was doing other things for parties because I had friends that had bands and I this and that that I would. And when I looked around, I saw what was available for a tent. Often you borrowed one from a funeral home because that's the only tent that was uh, available or that didn't smell like a, um, not a circus, but being used at uh, a carnival or something. So right. you could. You got a choice of tents that smelled like the cows or it smelled like popcorn or whatever. So I came up with the idea of providing fresh, clean tents uh, <laughs> of all sizes and shapes and colors. And but you did it for like major clients. Like you did it for the White House. Yes. We were lucky enough to be able to do work there for weddings and for a lot of the large, important events. Uh, that took place with guests, uh, you know, into the 1,500 peoples at a seated dinner. And your family, before that part of your career, was in casings, right? Yes, a family business. It's funny because we have friends whose dads came home from their jobs that might be in the advertising agency business, and they'd be talking about their clients that, you know, snap, crackle, and pop, or new products which were very interesting. And my dad would come home and um, talk about sausage casings. Wasn't as much fun. <laughs> Your family was making the casings that held hot dogs and sausages, right? That's right. What right. do you think of the whole like plant-based meat craze? I've seen them. I don't know if I've had one. Right. But I think if you eat too many of them, things start growing in your stomach. <laughs> That's just a guess. I don't know. So you are at the age where, as you have said, and it's not fun, you've, you've lost a lot of friends, uh, you know, and they, they've passed on. And you yourself are more alive than ever. And thank God for that for me. But often you are asked to speak at your friends' funerals. That? Which is like, yeah. it's a grave, solemn very you know, solemn duty. service, but um, so what, what? Why? First of all, I understand why people love you so much because I do that they want you to speak at their funeral, and I know that you go to everyone's funeral because you want them to go to yours. As you <laughs> that guys. would yeah, I'd have like forty people there, which would be very exciting right. for me. But you you are frequently on the funeral speaking circuit. So what do you do? Like who puts you like knowing everything you've just said about all the things that you do to mess with situations that are too serious? That's like the most solemn and, you know, no pun intended, great grave of them all. I agree with you. What do you do when someone asks you to give some kind of a speech? Well, I think about it obviously, and I'm can be serious too. At my best friend a lifelong friend at his funeral, and we traveled together. We had a lot of fun together over the years. When I went up to the podium to speak, I had, I tripped. 
So that was one of your fake trips on the lint. One of a fake trip going up the stairs. And <laughs> so I, you have a whole crowd. And I <laughs> had three by five cards in my hand, which I threw up in the air to make it appear like I had, you know, tripped and dropped all these cards all over, which was my speech. And then I went over to the mic as if nothing had happened. And I said that John made me do it. And then I pulled out my real nose from my jacket and read my remarks. But I don't do that all the time. But No, only for special friends. Right, right. Right. Well, I think, you know, you always talk about why you do all this stuff as you're just trying to make life more livable. So I think all of these stories, um, I think those who, who are just meeting you for the first time, the question people would ask is really, why do you do all of this? Because not a day goes by where you don't have an idea like this and do it. Do it. You do it every day. Why do you do this? I don't know. Things come to my mind when I'm driving or visiting uh, with someone that just maybe will tickle them a little bit. And in these days when things are can be so serious, uh, and maybe that'll uh, give them a little brighter day, and that's it. It's just I get a kick out of doing that. Sometimes they get, <laughs> I lose maybe a few friends over it, but normally uh, it's a fun thing to do. And I don't always know the people that are watching me or uh, traveling with me at that point, whether they get a joke out of it, but I think they do. I don't know why you have accepted me as a mentee. I'm probably annoying, but I know why you're my mentor because you have a kind beautiful soul combined with a joker mode. Like you have this inside character that is so genuine and generous and human, but then you have this part of you that just can't resist taking all the air out of situations and people that are just boring or stuffy and you just fuck with everything. And it reminds me in all the situations I'm in where everybody is just so smart and so successful and taking themselves so seriously to just never accept that, but to rebel in small ways against it and try to poke everybody. And so I walk around because of you poking everybody. <laughs> and I say all the things you're not supposed to say. And like sometimes it gets me in trouble. And sometimes it makes people laugh, but it always makes people think a little bit differently than they did before. And that's what you have always done for me. And that's why on our Think About This podcast, I had to bring on my mentor who makes me think differently about everything. Thank you. I'd like to add that now, um, you know, a lot of people when they're in their caskets can't hear the, uh, the person talking about them. Um, I'd like to put that in the can. <laughs> you can use that. Okay. I love it so much. I love it so much. Thank I you. I love well, you. I'm grateful to you beyond words and same, beyond podcasts. Same, buddy. I enjoy our days and times together. Thank you, Harry Oppenheimer. Okay. So, Ross, it's amazing that you could have an interview that is that fantastic without one word from me. Truly. 
<laughs> I think what you mean is you're really my mentor and you're wondering why I didn't interview no, you. No, no. I'm just, I'm, first of all, Harry's unbelievable. And I see, He's good, well, right? I can see how you were formed from raw clay by, by this <laughs> incredible man. Listen, you know what's so funny? Like he lives in Ojai, California, and he has an orange grove and an avocado grove. And he just sent me the greatest oranges in the in a box. Like I did, he got here today, uh, along with a um, a set of balloons for my son for his birthday, and a bunch of inappropriate flashcards, which I'm happy to show anyone offline. But I can't show you because we're on a podcast. But um, that's Harry Oppenheimer. He's the gift that keeps giving. And you know, other than you. He is the greatest mentor of all time. So I'm glad that you allowed me to interview him on this show. And I hope people love him as much as I do. What's not to love? Think about that. Shelly, how are you how are you staying sane in the midst of this? I mean, I get that like every week you're leading a workshop on how to work remotely. And it's good. Like people are using what you know your advice on this. But how are you actually staying sane? Well, I mean, the business is one thing, right? We're doing the Invent the Future workshops now every Wednesday from three to four and uh, on Zoom. And then we're doing work from home workshops. But to personally stay sane? Where do people find us? How do, you, how do people get to us? You go to ShellyPalmer.com slash chat, and that's a great place to go, and you'll, you'll get a chance. That's ShellyPalmer.com slash chat. Yeah, that's a good place to go. But on a personal level, the way I'm personally staying sane is... Yeah. Uh, Peter Martin, one of my favorite keyboard players, uh, put a challenge on YouTube at the beginning of the of the crazy a few weeks back, and he said it was time for a, a twelve key challenge, a thirty day twelve key challenge. And what that means is, you take practice licks and jazz licks and musical lines and phrases that you can do very comfortably in one or two or three or four keys, and you get good at them in all twelve keys, one a day, in all twelve keys. This day is um, the entire song, Donna Lee, in all 12 keys. That is what I'm going to woodshed today. Now, that doesn't keep me sane. That actually makes me crazy. But it is such a great way to escape from the whole universe. It's what I'm doing. So I've got about seven or eight of these lined up for the rest of of my exile. It's You know what? The benefit is you can't be thinking about anything else when you're doing it, which is great because it's a bit of an escape. And it it is a little bit of a sanity check. That, That is exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. What are you doing, Ross? I'm going out into the woods every weekend for about three hours on a Saturday and three hours on a Sunday. And then whenever I sneak it in during the week, I actually did three calls from the woods yesterday. I go out there with my son, Theo, who just turned 11, and we are building a nature trail in the woods. And That's I've amazing. Never, yeah, I've never done it before. We got all the tools. We didn't know how to use any of them. And we just started doing it. And like... It's so cool. It's and so I think, cool. And I think what everybody has to understand is that your lumberjack beard- Yes, yes, exactly. Is so, makes you so perfect for this. Well, it's like, it's like my badge that allows me to go into the woods and think I can do this. It's like I get my confidence from my lumberjack beard. Um, and, then <laughs> I, and then I just make the rest of it up. But you, to your point, you can't think about- anything else when you're doing that kind of activity. So no. it's a meditation and um, it brings you closer to nature, closer to your family, in this case, my son, and to yourself. You can actually hear yourself think if you just don't bring your phone, which I usually don't. And and we're, we're building like all these like special like 
art moments, like sculptural moments into the path. Like, so there's all these highlights and we, you know, it's like, if you were to go on this trail with me, I would stop you every five feet and be like, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see that? That's it's just so filled of, with wonder anyway. So it's a, a kind of gift that you get from this moment. Right? Yeah. There's one other thing that's keeping me sane, Ross, and that's just being lucky enough to check in with everybody all week long. I know that we're all in isolation, but to tell you the truth, I've spent more time checking in with people I care about oh, yeah. over the last six weeks than I have. And it's probably overdue. And if there's a silver lining to this, it's that. Totally. Think about that. Henry David Thoreau famously said in Walden that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. He obviously wasn't talking about our host or our very special guest. Ross, you're a lucky man to have Harry Oppenheimer as a friend and mentor. Thanks for introducing him to us. Please leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts for Think About This with Shelley Palmer and Ross Martin. And if you think you know less than you did before, just wait until our next episode. <laughs>